Welcome to the Disability Sport Info Show, the podcast that explores academic knowledge about disability sport. My name is Dr. Chris Brown, and I'm an academic with an expertise in disability sport. Each episode, I focus on a specific topic of disability sport and speak to academic experts to understand the area in more depth. So join me and listen to the Disability Sport Info Show to get an expert view on disability sport. Hello listener, welcome to the Disability Sport Info Show. Today's episode focuses on the sport participation experiences of individuals with a physical impairment. To get a better understanding of this area, I caught up with Dr. Tony Williams of Durham University. Thank you, Tony, for joining me today. Really appreciate you spending your time and sharing your expertise on uh, individuals with physical impairments and their physical activity and sport participation experiences. So I think to begin and to help our listeners, are you obviously please describe the research that has been carried out into the sport participation of individuals with physical impairments? Sure. And thank you very much, Chris, for having me. Well, there's actually been a lot of research into the sport and physical activity participation of individuals with physical impairments. Much of that research has really focused upon the barriers and facilitators to sport and physical activity. So we see at the individual level, there are lots of factors about the individual that may prevent them or facilitate them from participating in sport. So, for example, that might include people not wanting to participate because they don't have the motivation to do so, or they have um, a fear or embarrassment of taking part. It might be that taking part in sport physical activity causes pain. That might be another barrier that stops people. But also in terms of actual sport participation, some people actually just don't like sport. (laughs) And so they would rather participate in other physical activities, more like exercise or general wheeling rather than um, sport participation itself. And if you think as well about actual sports participation in terms of a, a team sport or For example, someone with a physical impairment who's in a wheelchair, to actually participate in sport costs a lot of money because you're talking about having a specialist sports wheelchair and other special equipment that doesn't come cheap. And so that doesn't involve playing sport in your everyday wheelchair. You need that specialist equipment. And that's something that often people cannot afford. And then if we look at the individual as well, someone might be really motivated to take part in sport or physical activity, but... That doesn't mean that they're able to because there's lots of other barriers that constrict participation. So at a social level, if you think about social support, um, depending on the level of physical impairment might mean that someone's reliant or dependent upon others to participate. So that could be friends or family, ferrying people to or from sports and physical activity opportunities, providing emotional support, providing financial support. And then you see the role here of like healthcare professionals and other sport and exercise practitioners is quite important. So if you go to a healthcare professional who's knowledgeable about local sports um, opportunities or knows about accessible gyms, etc., then then that's really great. But it can be that the healthcare professionals or sport and exercise practitioners don't know about opportunities for disabled people. Or it might be that once you go to a gym or a sports club that's supposedly accessible and inclusive, that you're faced with um, negative attitudes from others. 
that can be quite hurtful and exclusionary. So at a social level, we have quite a lot of barriers and facilitators as well. And then we also have the environment, the physical environment and the built environment in which sports and physical activities take place. So within um, institutions, you know, is there disability specific knowledge? Are the buildings accessible? Do they have the equipment? Do you have the coaches who understand how to include disabled individuals? Do you have the healthcare professionals or exercise practitioners who know how to adapt exercises for people who are disabled? And then you have kind of, again, at that environmental level, relationships between communities. So do schools and gyms and sports clubs talk to each other so that they can promote these opportunities. And as well, we see at an environmental level, the weather. So the bad weather can often stop people. So if it's snowy outside, so people are scared about slipping or tripping or it's really wet or it's cold, um, that can stop people participating. And I think we've seen a lot from through COVID how important it is to have online support as well. So people don't, if they can't get out or we're not able to get out, you can still access those opportunities. And then again, within this kind of barriers and facilitators research, we have information about policy. So policies that may provide opportunities or hinder opportunities. So for example, with our construction policy, we now see that all new buildings must be accessible, they must have ramped access, etc. Whereas if you go to an opportunity that's in a dated building, those barriers to physically actually entering a facility or having the space in a changing room to transfer from a chair to from chair to chair or um, having the the space to be able to maneuver around a changing room would be restricted because of the the building the age and the size so a lot of the research has really focused on those barriers and facilitators okay and it's a very complex picture from what you've painted to me there and when we're looking at the kind of the population more specifically, physical impairment is quite a broad category, includes a number of different types of impairments. What has traditionally been focused on in terms of that particular impairment within the broader physical impairment category? So is it potentially being more about wheelchair users? Is it looking at cerebral palsy? What kind of physical impairments have been focused on in the research? It's more common that the research focuses on one impairment than, than looks across. So that barriers and facilitators research I just mentioned was across. There is quite a lot of research within spinal cord injury, which is where my focus has typically been. So those people who have acquired an impairment. And obviously, when you think about having a significant illness or injury, which means um, an impairment has been acquired and, and then someone becomes disabled, that's huge in terms of coming to grips with understanding that. And that can make some of the barriers and facilitators you know more specific to those populations so if we think about people with spinal cord injury first of all if you've had a catastrophic injury which has changed your physical and motor sensory capabilities that's a, a lot to deal with in and of itself and then you're asking people now to become more physically active <laughs> um can be quite a challenge just in thinking about well you know, life has had gone through a major change. And not only have I got to think about, you know, the impact on relationships, on em employment status, on being able to get around my house. For some people, then, actually then having to think about, well, now I have to be physically active for my health. It's it's an, another challenge that, that people have to deal with. 
And so we see within the spinal cord injury literature, in terms of sport participation, a lot of the rehabilitation in the spinal units was typically aimed towards sport. And that's where we see the birth of the um, Paralympics. And for some younger people, sports participation can be great. It can be a way of building confidence, gaining new skills, being part of that team. I know some people really love being part of a team sport. But on the other hand, it can also be quite difficult. People who, for example, played basketball before they were injured don't necessarily want to go and play wheelchair basketball because it's it's not the same. And you see within the spinal cord injury population as well, we have a higher incidence of older adults becoming spinal cord injured because the care, the immediate care, paramedic care and care in hospital has got so much better. People are surviving and, and they're living with spinal cord injury in a much older age. So you're talking about trying to get an older generation active. Sport might be something that, that they're not interested in. So you have kind of have those additional considerations that you need to make depending on the population you're dealing with. And again, if we think about spinal cord injured people as a population, and we look at the guidelines for being physically active and what level of sport or exercise participation people need to get for health benefits, we see that the the generic guidelines, the level of intensity is quite high. So depending on the level of spinal cord injury and the level of impairment, it can be really difficult to hit the requirement for the number of minutes and the intensity at which people need to be active. So you do get this then development of we have some guidelines specifically for spinal cord injured people which show that at a lesser intensity of exercise, you can still reach those health benefits. And when we're thinking about promoting sport and physical activity, we need to move away from messages that are just focused solely on being active for health and that kind of whole exercise as medicine narrative that individuals are responsible um, for their own health and well-being and they must be active to do that. And we need to think about the other reasons that people want to be active, such as because it's fun and because it's pleasurable and it's in, it's enjoyable. And you can think about that enjoyment and pleasure in, in many different ways, such as like the whole kind of doing activities to get tired, to get sweaty, to really feel like you've exerted yourself, which when we come back to people with spinal cord injury, for example, that can be quite difficult to achieve, again, depending on that level of impairment. And yeah, being part of a team, taking part in a meaningful activity rather than just taking part in physical activity for health can be quite important if we want to motivate people to be active. So lots of interesting content there. And I want to put out a few of those threads that you've talked about. So first of all, you mentioned about those guidelines and you were saying Mm -hmm. how there's those generic guidelines that are provided, but also then specifically for spinal cord injuries. What level of involvement has been taken by individuals who actually form that population group in creating the guidelines? I'm just curious whether it's been designed from the grassroots up or it's been imposed from the top down. That's a very good question. So, for example, with the spinal cord injury guidelines, that was a international effort of a collaboration between researchers, between people with spinal cord injury themselves, physiotherapists, one exercise practitioners, that you had a lot of people coming together. And the actual guideline recommendation Um, which was what's the amount of exercise that needs to be undertaken to achieve a health benefit. That information was based upon the scientific literature, which shows this level of exercise has given X outcome. But when you look at how do we 
disseminate that information and what resources can be used to spread that knowledge that research has been conducted with people with spinal cord injury themselves and the people who are promoting those messages such as the healthcare professionals because it's important that the messages around physical activity are meaningful and that they represent the experiences of the people who the message is trying to reach so that's why it's really important people with spinal cord injury were engaged in those messages and those resources in terms of getting that information out there. So what's the kind of current approach to promoting physical activity and sport from organisations? Have they actually been doing that approach of focusing on more the kind of softer elements rather than just focusing on health? Oh, that's a big question. If we're talking about organisations more broadly, the message is getting through (laughs) that we need to focus beyond just health and look at the other benefits for sport. So the fact that it's about having fun, it's about engaging in activities that are meaningful. Um, It's about bringing people together. And I I don't know that I have examples off the top of my head where I can say an organisation has done X. Um, You certainly see with the charities who have been involved in the broader physical activity and disability guidelines such as um, Sport England and Disability Rights UK, those charities for sure are spreading the message around what else physical activity can do for us beyond our physical and and mental health. And actually, you see a, a lot of campaigns at the moment focusing on mental health. We've certainly seen during the pandemic an increased rise in anxiety and depression etc through isolation and we saw that our disabled community were particularly isolated during this time and through the sport england active life survey sport and physical activity participation in particular decreased more than the non-disabled population so the messages about being active now are for sure moving away from just the health benefits but obviously the health benefits are still important and we're looking now more at saying yes you can be active to increase your strength and to increase your muscle mass and that makes activities such as transferring from a wheelchair easier but it also means that you might have more energy to play with your children or to you know when you come home from work at the end of the day so those kind of messages are important too about what are the benefits outside of just our health what impact can this have on our lives in terms of employment, in terms of family, beyond just health. Yeah, and again, I think that's a really good point. You know, kind of the transference of benefits that you can get from being physically active or participating in sport. Okay, so we understand the probably the potentially the more most efficient or effective way of promoting physical activity in sport. How do we do that? And what has the research been like in terms of understanding the channels of communication that we use to actually reach our audience? There's quite a bit of research which talks about what are the preferred channels in terms of who are the messengers and what are the messages. So we kind of talked about the messages of being for exercise beyond health, how else it can impact us. And then if you think about who is delivering those messages, we know that from the research, there's a a few groups of people who are quite important for delivering the message. So you've got your healthcare professionals, our GPs, our physiotherapists, etc., who are seen as real credible messages of, of this type of information, of our physical activity information. But what we also know from the research is that this group of people don't always know 
how to promote sport and physical activity and they don't know the specific information. So if I give you some examples, when we're doing our research with the physiotherapists in the spinal units, they absolutely knew the importance of being physically active. But that didn't always mean that they were actively promoting physical activity because for example, they weren't aware of the guidelines of you know how much activity should be to undertaken for how long. They might not know about where in the local community that somebody lives there are activities. They might not know about the disability sport organisations and charities who can provide support. So you know, and their job involves so much more than just promoting physical activity. That again, it was seen as a an addition to their role and so it wasn't always something that came up in conversation but you see there are policies in place such as you know make every contact count in the NHS which is trying to get our healthcare professionals to be promoting healthier lifestyles of which physical activity is one but we also see the role of peers and our disability sports organizations who often include disabled people themselves running those organizations promoting the sports and peers are a really credible source of information so you know those people who've been there done that who can tell stories so we see in our research on narrative and the you know powerful capacity that stories have to shape our action how important it can be for someone to tell a story about how they overcome Uh, the barriers that they face to be active and the benefits that they got from being physically active. So those stories from our peers are really important. And we've seen a lot with the new physical activity guidelines, the role of others such as social workers, the people who are interacting with disabled people on a more regular basis and how they can be really credible messengers of physical activity information. So you've got kind of the people, and then you've got the ways that information can be disseminated. So, you know, we've got our journal articles, but they're no good for our people who are outside of academia for for getting information. So we see how that knowledge is translated into infographics, which nicely break down key information. Uh, But again, an infographic on its own doesn't necessarily mean it's going to change behaviour. So that might need to be supported with some workshops to help people know how to promote physical activity with some videos. So we talked about the importance of stories. So actually circulating videos of people talking about their experiences. And that can be done online, through social media, through websites, etc. So you've got lots of channels, lots of ways to get to people, get the message out to people, to disable people themselves, and then to get other people promoting physical activity. So it's, it's a big big operation it sounds like to to try and get that coordinated and working efficiently absolutely I think a lot of the research has also shown that you can't just tackle one barrier at a time because people are not faced with just one barrier they're faced with multiple barriers and you know we know that we live in a very ableist society that favours able-bodied individuals and discriminates against disabled people in terms of accessing um, opportunities to be physically active. And what we really need is kind of multi-sector approaches or systems approaches, if you like, to promote physical activity. And that's you know quite a big undertaking, which is why we're probably still not getting the levels of activity that we would like. So in terms of addressing that, you kind of really need approaches to get more people physically active by engaging, trying to change environments and policy. You want to be fostering more inclusive and accessible 
environments and opportunities themselves. You need to be changing the knowledge and attitudes of healthcare professionals, sport and exercise practitioners in terms of educating and, and motivating people. So you need really partnerships between our health and our community disabled organisations where we're facilitating information. So sharing knowledge about local programmes and facilities and sharing equipment, being, being able to connect people together so that if you if you're a healthcare professional or you're a sport and exercise practitioner or you're a GP and you see interact with a disabled person that you can have more positive and motivating conversations about sport and physical activity and you're actually able to signpost people to accessible and inclusive opportunities because we see there are some really great initiatives that go on so for example um we had the inclusive fitness initiative and you know so you had these gyms that basically had an inclusive fitness initiative stamp so this was a gym that was saying um i reach a certain standard of where disabled people could come and be physically active but actually it might be that the gym had a ramped access and the changing room was more spacious. But that didn't mean that there were positive attitudes of the non-disabled gym members in that space. You know, you were still faced with the same pictures of non-disabled people, sporting bodies, those motivational messages that are very ableist. So there does need to be this kind of systems approach to improving physical activity. And obviously we can try and address that one barrier at a time but we need to be addressing those barriers together if we're going to be changing attitudes improving access and supporting disabled people to be physically active for life and you've hinted at this and this is probably an impossible question to answer in um well, in the time that we have so i've already kind of set you up to failure so apologies for that um <laughs> what is the main thing that needs to be done to increase participation for people with physical impairments so yeah the the main thing as we said, there's not just one thing, but maybe what everybody could be doing is if we're saying we need a systems level approach to tackling these barriers, but everybody should be taking the responsibility perhaps within the organisation that they're in, um, the sport and physical activity opportunities that they partake in to be more inclusive. So if I give you an example, if we think about in our university institutions, we know the importance of positive physical activity messages about being inclusive etc however we also know that our sport and exercise science students if we take them as a population and we think about in the curriculum how much are we teaching them about disability sport how much are we perpetuating ableist notions about what you know the people who are physically active and sports in our in our curriculum and changing the or improving the experiences that our students can have with disabled people as part of the curriculum And if we have a look across sport and exercise science programmes as a whole, we see that disability and other inequalities doesn't often feature in our curriculum. We teach a lot of mainstream subjects such as physiology, nutrition, etc. But we focus a lot on our young, able-bodied male athletes within that teaching. So if you think about in our universities, what can we do? We just did a, a small project which looked at the stories that our sport and exercise students tell about disability, sport and physical activity. And we did that through a method of story completion. So that was where you provide a participant with the start of a story and you ask them to to write the end of the story. 
So we provided some STEMs about physical activity, about um, an able-bodied person interacting with a disabled instructor in the gym and asked the students to write what happened next. And what was really interesting is we saw that a lot of the stories that these students were writing were underpinned by ableist notions about what disabled people can and can't do. And the premise is that a disabled person is incapable of doing a sport and physical activity to the same level as a non-disabled person because of their impairment. And so we were thinking about what can we do? Well, within each of the organisations that we operate in, we need to think about changing the story and promoting more positive messages. So, for example, within curriculums such as our sport and exercise science degrees, where these are the next generation of sport, exercise and health practitioners who are potentially going to be supporting and fostering physical activity opportunities for disabled people. We need to make sure that we're raising issues of inequality and social justice and also providing opportunities for people to understand how to tackle barriers and how individuals themselves can make important differences in the way they interact with disabled people and talk about disabled people in terms of the messages that they're promoting, the conversations they're having. So I think in terms of the main thing that can be done, it is a systems approach. We we need from all areas, we need improvements in getting people more physically active. But on an individual level, we can each think about what's the environment I operate in? How can I take up a mission of social justice and try and improve the sport and activity participation for disabled people within the institution I'm in, within the gym I go to, within the sports club I run? You know, and that, that goes as far as sport and exercise practitioners, gym instructors, coaches, our healthcare professionals, parents. You know, there's a, a whole group of people that can be taken a more positive action to be more inclusive so i'm not sure if i've managed to sidestep your question <laughs> yeah no i thought that was an excellent answer um i think you did admirably to tackle that well trap laden question i think so well, well done for doing that and um i think that's a really important point so you've got the the macro level about the systems approach and then you've got the micro level looking at the individual and the mm-hmm. fact that we can all be advocates in our day-to-day life and that, that can obviously take different shapes and forms but if we are advocates for being more inclusive and being more disability aware, hopefully that will filter through into kind of small changes, which then aggregate into bigger changes alongside the systems approach that you've highlighted. I hope so. Yeah, indeed. Nice kind of positive, powering way to end, I think. So thank you so much, Tony. It's been great chatting to you. And well, I've learned a lot talking to you now, and I hope the listeners have also learned a lot by speaking about physical impairments and sport participation and physical activity opportunities. So thank you ever so much. It'd be great to catch up with you soon. Okay, thank you, Chris. That's it. That's all we have time for. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Disability Sport Info Show. Stay tuned for another episode. Until then, goodbye. You've been listening to the Disability Sport Info Show, academic insights into disability sport.